They have an Italian two-group espresso machine that is fantastic. Uh, and they can make you a cappuccino that will light you up. Anyway, so over those cappuccinos, I was talking to a friend of mine who had been, who we were, we were friends in seminary and classmates in seminary, and he had, he had uh, planted a church in Fort Worth, uh, Christ the Redeemer in Fort Worth. And uh, he, he had been driving down to Waco to meet with this group of Baylor faculty and administrators who had wanted to plant an ACNA church. And I asked him about it. So tell me about what's going on in Waco. And he said, oh, you've got to come see it. And within three weeks, my entire life had been flipped upside down. And, uh, and by December, uh, I was visiting Christ Church for the first time. And I saw a group of about 35, 40 people with little kids running all over the place and youth and vitality and the rest. And I went to dinner with them afterwards and I said, I think you've undersold it. <laughs> and, and I wound up uh, uh, saying to them that night, I said, I know you've been trying to raise money so you can call a planter and all that, but let me just kind of help you think outside the box for a moment. What if I just moved to Waco and had the bishop assign me to be your priest? And they said, well, I don't know if that would work. Like, I don't know if that could happen. But by December 26th, I was in the bishop's office begging him to send me to, uh, to Christ Church to be their first planting priest. And he, he, he with some great hesitation, did this. Um, but we, we uh, put our house on the market in January. We did not have, there was no sense of income. There were no budgets. There was $30,000 in the bank and an income of about $1,500 a month at that point. Uh, and... They kept saying, well, we can't pay you, we can't pay you. And I remember being in an airport in Phoenix, coming away from an Always Forward meeting, and I was talking to the senior warden, and, and I said, now, now, Jeff, I want to make sure that you reserve the school for Holy Week. And he said, man, I'm just, I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to make this happen. You know, there's a lot that has to happen, and a lot that has to come together, and a lot of money that has to be raised. And I said, Jeff, you don't understand. I am moving to Waco on Ash Wednesday. <laughs> we've got a house reserved, the whole thing's ready to go. you got to get ready, brother. <laughs> so, so, so we did this, and, and it was an insane time. And uh, within about four to six months, half the church had left. Um, and I remember being, and it was some of it was just like moves for new jobs, and some of it was we hate you, and some of it was like, you know. Um, one of it was I sat down with a guy across the table at lunch, and He's one of these complaining types, and I just said, "Brother, you know, life's too short to be a part of a church you hate." I said, "I think you need to find a new church." And he took his thousand-dollar a month pledge and went elsewhere. And uh, and but I have to say, this was such an incredible time because what happened right around the same time was people in that church said, "When you talk about catechesis, we don't feel like we've ever had that." And and so please teach us, please like. You were part of writing the catechism. Teach us the catechism. And I said, I remember saying, I said, friends, yeah, I was a part of writing the catechism. And yeah, it's it good. And yeah, it was, you know, great time. But, and I think you're going to be bored. Like, I think I'm going to be bored. And they said, we don't care. Teach us the catechism. I said, all right. So we gathered people in the living room on off Sundays because we hadn't launched yet. And we started to go through question by question through the catechism. And I found a level of excitement for the basics Christian teaching that I had never encountered before. Not only in the people I was teaching, but the people that, but but in myself. Um, and and I use I borrow this this analogy from Augustine. Saint Augustine says that that catechesis is like taking people on a tour of your hometown. 
the stuff that you get that, that just becomes familiar and commonplace and normal all of a sudden becomes an object of excitement and delight. Um, and incredible things started to happen. By August, uh, we cleared out a lot of it. <laughs> we were down to like, I remember I was telling Father Sean this last night. We, were, we, had a, we had a service on Sunday night where 15 people showed up. And I set up the chairs myself. And I remember thinking, like, Lord, unless you do this, it's not going to work. Right. And graduate students started to flow in. Uh, a priest came from, from Fuller in California to come alongside and do this work. And uh, we just experienced this incredible, <coughs> immense growth. And what people were attracted to was the fact that we were doing this work of catechesis. Um, so I want to just begin this. Uh, today we're going to have a master class in catechesis, and we call it a master class mainly because uh, I want to show you what this looks like. I want to give you an example of what, what it is we're doing, um, but I want to show you a little bit about this. I've got some slides up here. But this is the early days of Christ Church Waco. We're gathered in a school cafeteria. This is a classical school. This is in the days when we had about 30 people gather around, and on off Sunday evenings when we weren't having public worship, we would gather like this. And people would sit at tables, and we would do, we would go through the catechism question by question, not knowing how many questions we were going to do, not knowing how, not knowing where the conversation was going to go. Sometimes we would be in this room till 9:30, 10 o'clock at night because we would hit sticky issues, and I'd say, okay, if you want to stay and talk, stay and talk, um, because Christchurch is kind of a nerdy place. There, uh, uh, at last count, there's only like 28 seminary graduates in our church and uh, 30 PhD students now, and uh, it's just an insane, insane deal. I feel undereducated all the time. The guy in the blue shirt is a papyrologist, a kind of famous papyrologist. He studies Greek papyri and reads Greek and Latin off the page. Uh, his, his wife is a classical educator. Uh, you know, one of these guys back there is the composer in residence at Baylor. Uh, he's an incredible Colombian, uh, uh, or actually Salvadoran uh, composer, and so uh, we would, but we would do this. We would, we would gather like this. And we would have an hour of teaching, and I would teach it, and then we would break into small groups of tables, and we'd have discussions, and I'd ask two questions. And the first one was, what, what did you learn today that surprised you? And the second question was, how is this going to matter to you tomorrow? When you wake up in bed tomorrow, how is this going to matter? So we'd have about 20 minutes of discussion that way. And then uh, a bunch of people came to me, and they said, Father, we... We love the catechesis stuff. It's great. We all go out to dinner afterwards. It's a great time. But we are eucharistically starving. We're starving for communion. We, we want to receive the Eucharist every Sunday. And I know we haven't launched it, but could we please have the Eucharist after catechesis? And I said, well, that's fine, but I'm not going to put, put forth a whole lot of effort because we you know, we're not going to launch yet, and that's not going to happen because we're not the people yet. But what we did was we'd have this, and then back in that little spot right there, we had we had just a table set up, and we would go and we would have we would celebrate the Eucharist without without a sermon, um, without music. Readers were picked on the fly. It was here, take a Bible <laughs> and read. You know, we didn't set up chairs. We didn't have slides. Uh, people were standing around these tables. Kids standing on the table so they could see. And I remember it being an incredibly exciting time. Because what we were doing was we were teaching, and we were teaching people into the Eucharist, and and uh, and the response was amazing. Um, and we did this straight up to the time we launched, and we launched with about with over 100 people. Mm -hmm. 
And now we have this thriving parish uh, three years later, uh, and our, our tenants is like in the 225 range, usually most Sundays. Um, we, we received an opportunity last spring to buy to buy the entire campus of First Lutheran Wake for under $400,000. So you know, your church planners, you're like, yes, yes, please. <laughs> More of that, please. <laughs> so we did, we just, we just bought it, and, and we actually paid cash uh, for, for the building. Uh, so, and what, what has energized people continually is this emphasis on catechesis. We have, on any given Sunday, uh, 80 to 90% of the people in worship are in catechesis. Um, so that's our that's our Sunday attendance, you know, kind of great. And and I will grant you this, like a lot of people always say, yeah, but you're in nerd, you're in a nerdy place, like it's so nerdy, like we can't do that because we're not nerdy. It's like, listen, God has made us to delight in His truth and to be set free by it, and that's not just nerds, it's everybody. Amen. <laughs> and so I want to say that I want to say that repeatedly to you because sometimes people will say you're in a different world than I am, and and catechesis just isn't going to fly with the people I serve. And, and you say, you're thinking too much about what catechesis is. Um, and I want to say a little bit about what catechesis is uh, just before we jump into this. Um, and for this, I'll, I'll turn to Cyril of Jerusalem. Um, and Cyril, speaking to those who have just been baptized, uh, and this, you, I want you to imagine, this is like Easter Monday, and these people are still wearing the clothes that they were clothed in after coming up out of the baptismal waters in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre a few, a few hundred feet from where Jesus rose from the dead. And Cyril says to them, and I'm going to quote it, I'm going to, you know, not quote it, but, but he says, see what honor the Father has shown you because you are called catechumens. And, and the, the word resounded in you as, in, as, as if into an empty place. What he's talking about is he's talking about the kind of echo that happens out of emptiness. Um, if you've ever been to a cave and, and you speak into the cave, what happens? The word comes back to you, right? There's nothing in the cave. It's just a cave. It's empty. But the word comes back. And this is consistently what the Greek fathers in particular talk about when they're talking about catechesis. It's this speaking into an empty place. The word is put into an empty place, and the word resounds back. That's catechesis. And I would say that for probably most, most people in North America today, they are empty places for the gospel. But they are made to resound with the gospel. They're made to resound with the word of God. And so if you have the opportunity to speak into that emptiness and have it resound back, uh, you'll find great fruit, amazing fruit, over and over and over again. Um, we have a we have a we have a society today in which um, you know our churchless rate in North America is about 27 percent. These are people who may have may have attended the church once in the last year, but just because they went to a funeral or something like that, um, they don't have a church home at all. Uh, we have about a forty percent who claim that they have some sort of affiliation. Um, they're not nuns, right? But they're basically saying. I'm a part of this church, but it really doesn't form my identity, really. And about 20% of Americans are, are solid Christians. Um, and so we're, we're in a place where we've, we've really fallen uh, from, a, from a place of doing catechesis and doing it well. 
And I can, I can tell you a little bit about what happened and just give it in a paraphrase, but in the early church, catechesis was in the air. It was, it was how they operated. It was what they did. Um, if you were baptized as an adult, it was because you'd spent a year or two or three as a captain. You had been instructed fully. And somewhere along the line, uh, especially the Reformers, the Reformers are, are fanatical about catechesis. And they're fanatical about it because they recognize that uh, Christian knowledge had fallen. Um, Luther, in his introduction to the large catechism, says that the people in the parishes of Germany are like swine. He's really, you know, this is Luther. He loves this, right? He loves calling people pigs. Uh, but but he's, he says they, they, have, they really don't have the foggiest idea about what Christians believe or teach. And so much of it's just cultural. And so the Reformers, one of their main tasks, and this is true of Cramer, it's true of Luther, it's true of Calvin, it's true of, of many others, is just say, we need to write catechisms. And so the catechism is a Reformation device. It comes directly out of the Reformation. And this is not only true of, of Reform types, but also of, of Catholics as well. You know, the Roman Catholics said, if you've got catechisms, we've got catechisms. <laughs> Let's write some catechisms, right? Uh, and, and in Anglicanism, you know, we have we have these we have this basic format of, of a catechism that was attached to the prayer book, and um, the the idea was that it would be that people would be instructed every Sunday night in the catechism. That this would be a normal thing, and something happened. You can blame it on Sunday school. You can blame it on just uh, laziness. You can blame it on all kinds of things. But but what happened was that those who were supposed to be the standard bearers of catechesis said, that's not what we do anymore. And as, and as the clergy became professionalized, and as Sunday school became the norm, we stopped doing this work. We just quit. Because we said, well, you know, the Sunday school directors, they do all that for us. And here's what was happening in, Sunday, in the Sunday school movement. Sunday school teachers were meeting together on Saturday mornings for coffee in, in cross-denominational what was really like a coffee clash. <laughs> and they were designing uh, one-size-fits-all Sunday school lessons that could be used just as well by Baptists as by Episcopalians, as by Lutherans, as by uh, Presbyterians. And you know what you get when you get that? You get the lowest common denominator. And the lowest common denominator among Sunday school teachers in the early 1900s is pretty dang low. And through all of that, the clergy, all of us thought, we got that covered. Yeah. That is, that is, listen, if you want to know who teaches the children in our church, it's Mrs. So-and-so. It's Miss So-and-so. They do it, they're, and they're great. We love our Sunday school teachers. Aren't they wonderful? And I think if we were all honest about it, we would say, we're, we're really worried about the state of our children's instruction. One of the first things we did as the Catechesis Task Force was we did a church-wide survey of, of parish leadership about how good they feel about their children's instruction. Only 26, it was literally 26% came back and said, we think it's good or very good. The rest said, it's bad. It's just bad. And when we probed them a little bit and said, what do you mean by bad? Like, what's going on there? Um, we did some sort of qualitative analysis of, of those surveys. 
we found that people were saying, we don't, we're worried that our kids are not going to grow up Christians. We're, we're really worried that the parents are not equipped sufficiently for that task. We're worried that we've sufficiently taken this over so much and we have bad resources that we can't do this. Um, and it's here that I want to hit on something that Father Sean and I were talking about as we came down the road. We don't have a resource problem. You can, open up, you can open up a catalog and you can buy tons and tons of resources. You can buy them off the shelf. They're readily available. And you can have a Sunday school program in a week. But is it effective? Does it, does it jive with where we are as Anglicans? You know, do you remember the David C. Cook Anglican edition? Let's just be self-introspective about this. All right, I'm, I'm just going to say it. That was garbage. It was garbage. Why was it garbage? Because it was David C. Cook with all this Anglican stuff thrown in. And so it didn't make sense. It, was, it wasn't, wasn't cohesive, right? It wasn't coherent. Um, we don't have a resource problem. Uh, one of my friends, Leslie Thyberg, loves to talk about the English expedition to the North Pole. Do you know about this? Have you heard about this? Uh, the, the English in the, in the 1800s sent a ship to go to, to go find the North Pole. And of course, you can't take a ship to the North Pole, not, a, not, not, a one, not one that's you know, driven by wind, anyway. Uh, but, but this ship had, all the officers had their own sets of china with their initials in gold lettering. They had a library with 30,000 volumes. They had uh, provisions to last three years, canned up and ready to go. And within a year, all of them were dead and frozen to death in the north. You see, they didn't have a resource problem. What did they have? Well, it was a suicide mission. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> they didn't know how to practice it. They, they didn't have the practices, and they didn't take the time to think that the North Pole might just be frozen solid. So maybe a ship isn't going to help us that much. Um, and I really think that's the case of Britain today. We're trying to reach the North Pole in a ship, and it's not going to work. Um, so, so what I've called for, and what our committee's called for, is a total revitalization of the life of catechesis within the ACNA, to the end that we have a, a thriving, mature base of Christians who have been converted and who, have, and who have been instructed thoroughly, and who know what they believe, and know the one in whom they place their hope, uh, and who are radically uh, committed um, to the kingdom. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It, it, you know, sometimes it happens that God will just reach down and reach people, right? You have that happen. But catechesis is work, friends. It's solid, hard work. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes commitment. It takes a culture. It takes practice. Um, it takes it takes saying, I'm going to do this, feeling like a complete idiot and feeling like I'm going to be boring and feeling like people are going to be bored and then being surprised pleasantly that they're not. And being surprised pleasantly that you actually love it. So one of the things I want to do is today is, is call people to say, consider whether or not you want to do this. Um, and so we're going to do a session. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to experience a session of catechesis using the catechism. 
So if you don't have a catechism, it's okay. I've got it on site. We're going to do the section on adultery, because that'll be fun, right? And, uh, and we're going uh, to start by singing a hymn. And I'm going to show you how we do that. And then we're going to look at an icon. So we're going to do some visual stuff up there. What you're going to see is you're going to see a multifaceted way of, of, uh, of engaging pedagogically uh, that will result in people getting understanding. I'll read questions, you'll read answers, and then we'll have a time for debriefing. Okay, so the first thing is we're going to stand. We're going to sing a we're going to sing a hymn, and it's a little bit of a hard one, but it's going to be fun. Okay, Jerusalem the Gold. You ready? Does anybody know this hymn? So you can sing loudly and audaciously. Okay. I don't have my piano key. Oh, here we go. That's great. Jerusalem the Golden with milk and honey blessed beneath thy contemplation sing heart and voice oppressed I know not oh I know not what joys await us there what radiancy of glory what bliss beyond compare they send those halls of Zion all jubilant with song and bright with many an angel and all the martyr throng the princes ever in them the day of life is serene the pastures of the blessed are decked in glorious sheen there is the throne of David and there from carry the shout of them that triumph the song of Session, but at times I'm going to jump out. So I think what's best is when I'm standing here, I'm in 
I'm in commentary mode, okay? So I'm going to do some commentary, and then when I step back here, I'll be in catechist mode. Does that work so you, so you know what I'm doing at any given time? Okay, I'll try to make it work. Um, why start with a hymn? Wake people up. Yeah, wake people up, right? You feel way more awake. He who sings prays twice. Yes, you pray, good. What else? Center on worship. Center on worship, yes, that's good. Uh, a song is like honey that allows the words to go down. Yep, for sure. Gets your whole body involved. Gets your body involved. Do you know that that uh, your brain has empathy centers? Mm -hmm. And that when you sing, even badly, your empathy centers light up? <laughs> it's amazing what science can teach you. Uh, and, and this is a trick, by the way, because now you're going to listen to every word I have to say. Because your empathy center is lit up. <laughs> Um, what else? We've engaged us communally. Yep, we've been engaged communally. Now, this is where I want to say a little bit. Basil uh, of Caesarea says, no, I'm sorry, Gregor and I get my Cappadocian Bible picked up. Yeah. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa says that when two people who are enemies sing a song together, when they sing on the same notes, just for that time, they cease to be enemies. And, and i got to tell you that whether or not you knew it, there's somebody in here that might be your enemy. In certain ways, large, small, in between. But just for a moment, you were singing the same notes. And here's what's happening when you do that. When you do that, um, I, I think this. I think that, that what happens when we sing together as Christians is that God is breaking into our divisions. And he's inserting himself into them. And he's saying, uh, uh, let me get you all on the same page. Let me, let me get you together. So yes, we, we experienced that community. Okay, so now I'm back to Catechism. Today we're going to talk about the Seventh Commandment. By the way, at this point, we've been talking through the whole Catechism up to the Seventh Commandment. And uh, this would be, in our world, this would be about in May. Maybe, maybe even June. At Christ Church, we do, we do catechesis starting in August. The Sunday after students move into their, after freshmen move into their dorms at Baylor. Why do we do that? They're in school mode. Yeah, because they've gone from summer mode to school mode, and everybody has. So we fit the calendar for catechesis to the calendar of the people that are there. Um, every year when, when, um, when, uh, when Epiphany rolls around, I start to say, okay, if you haven't been baptized, time to start thinking about that. If your kids haven't been baptized, time to start thinking about that. If you would like to be confirmed, Consider that, and I'll talk with you about it. Um, now, in our adult catechesis class, we have 65 people. Um, I tell all these people at the beginning of the year, and I did this a couple weeks, several weeks ago, you are my primary pastoral concern for the next year. Okay, we got tons of people, but you're my primary pastoral concern. So if you call me and you're at the hospital, I will be there. I'm not going to send someone else. I will be there. Um, if you call me and you're in crisis, I will meet with you you call me and this is what's happening. I will be there. And, and that's probably true of a lot of people at Christ Church, but it's definitely true of you because you are the primary, uh, you're, you're the visitor's table, right? Um, in the Benedictine Monastery, the abbot would, and still does, sits with the visitors at meals. Sits with the outsiders. Why? Hospitality. Hospitality is the big thing. I will tell you this. Catechesis puts, the, puts a parish church in a hospitality mode where we expect that there are people who will not share what we believe. 
where we expect there will be people, that there will be outsiders, where we expect that there will be people in off the streets, where we have the full expectation that because we're teaching the basics, there will be people who do not know the basics in our church, that there will be people who do not know how to open the book of Numbers in the Bible. We expect this. We're ready for it. We're prepared. The posture is different. What's the other reason that the abbot sits with the visitors? I'll, I'll just tell you. So the visitors don't have to listen to monks grumble about all that's wrong in the community. <laughs> There's some value to that, right? There's a lot of value to that. I mean, I, lo- I love using the analogy that the catechumen is like the front porch of the church, right? Uh, I, my wife and I, we love craftsman houses. Um, we lived in one in California, a bungalow with a porch as wide as the house. We now live in a craftsman house in Waco that we just bought. Beautiful 100-year-old house. And it has a gigantic porch. And the thing that I'm most excited about is that we will have neighbors who are welcome to drink a beer with me, uh, talk about everything with me on that front porch, but I just assume that they're not coming to the house. Because I don't want them to see my dirty laundry. And I don't want them to see my kids acting up. And I don't want them to see all that. Now, someday I want them to see that, but not right now. What we do when we have a catechumenate is we have a front porch space where people can belong but not believe, where people can uh, experience Christian hospitality in a radical and dynamic way, where they can even start to act like Christians act, but we're really clear. You're not one of us. Um, A lot of churches have membership processes that last three, four weeks, and you say, okay, now you're a member. I, I... I love that. I'm fine with that. That's, you've got a process. That's great. That's better than a lot of places, right? It's better than a lot of places where, uh, where you sign a check and they take your address off the check and you're a member. Um, but, but we say it takes about a year to re- really become a member. Um, and so don't worry about all that stuff in the meantime. You've got a year. Enjoy it. Don't feel like you have to do anything. We might ask you to read on a Sunday. We might ask you to, you know, do the slide thing with the computer. We might ask you to, um, might ask you to play if you play an instrument. We might ask you to play in the church uh, musicians group. But but we were just, we just don't require anything of catechumens. That's as a matter of basic substance. Okay. All right. Should I jump back in? Okay, we're back in catechism. So go ahead. Feel free to ask questions. Uh, all right. So you you go through that catechesis every year with the new group. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you do with those who are uh, continuing in your congregation yep. to disciple them? Yep. So there are uh, lots of opportunities for that. Um, we actually usually ask people to either continue to engage in some kind of, some kind of catechesis, and we have next steps classes for that. Um, we've got we've got a scholarly community, and so the the scholars lead those. We've got a theologian teaching a theology colloquium, right? which is really fun. And then we've got uh, a literature scholar who's actually uh, uh, somebody you may know, Ralph Wood, who teaches a class on uh, Flannery O'Connor right now. So we've got, we've got a group of people reading Flannery O'Connor short stories and thinking theologically about Flannery O'Connor. And that's fun. But what we usually say to people is like, either do that or get engaged in teaching or get engaged in serving. And so there's lots of opportunities for that. But, but the base year is meant to be like the root of the tree. It's meant to say, start there, and then move on to the rest. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I'm, I'm, this is going to sound really radical. I would be completely fine with it if people just finished catechesis and then led a, a self-feeding Christian life for the rest of their lives. That's what it's supposed to do. I think I'd be fine with saying, 
you know how to find Christian fellowship, go do it. Like, you know how to do this, you know how to do that, go do it. Um, in fact, uh, Augustine, uh, in some of his Easter homilies, uh, having just baptized people who came in from the country to receive that last stretch of catechesis, um, he would baptize them and then send them out to North African country towns, fully expecting that they would only yearly come back to that church. Um, because the idea was, you're going to go and do this where you are. You're going to go form Christian community where you are. Um, and that sounds like completely radical to us, but it's because we don't have, we don't trust the process that we've got in place. And probably we shouldn't, right? Um, so I hope that I hope that helps. We we have we have um, we have second steps. We'll probably have third steps. Um, we're probably going to have all kinds of things going on in the future. Um, but that's that's the answer to the question. Um, go ahead. You got kind of thesis that starts at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What nine thirty or whatever? It's ten thirty. Yeah. You said ninety percent of your people still come to that. Ninety percent are engaged in some form of catechesis on Sunday mornings of our Sunday attendance, on average. Oh, so there are other things running parallel to that. Oh yeah, tons of things. Youth, oh, there's see. a youth class. There's children's catechesis. There's uh, like all kinds of things. Yeah. So, yep. Do you, do you cover the entire to be a Christian in that period? Yes. Every single question. Every year we cover every question we have. We don't stop until we have. I'm, I'm like in the middle of year two, and I'm maybe two thirds of the way done. Great. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm just like, gosh, I don't, I don't know that I could, you know, a three-year cycle seems a lot. And that's what yeah. I'm at. Well, maybe that's what you got. I mean, I tell anybody this: like, if it takes you three years, it's going to take you three years. Do that. Um, enjoy the ride. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> but, but what we do is we, we basically say this: we say. I invite the bishop to visit at, uh, at Easter. So, low Sunday, usually. <laughs> That's a trick, right? <laughs> and uh, and he, he confirms those who I'm presenting for confirmation on that Sunday. So that by the time they're being confirmed, they've been in this for a long while, and they're committed, and they're going to continue to be committed. Um, so it, it is a process that, that results in confirmation, for sure, for most people. Um, one, one other thing that I should clarify, uh, we do catechesis resulting perhaps in confirmation for not just adults but youth as well. So the we don't have a youth confirmation class. That's what that means. How are you defining youth? Like anyone older than thirteen. Thirteen and older. And what I just say is is you might go to the youth class for a while and decide you want to do the adult class, resulting in confirmation as being possible for you. But that's the only way it happens. Because we, we, don't want to, we don't want to send this message that says, okay, we've got, in the Christian faith, we have the adult version, mm-hmm. and then we got the youth version, right? which is shiny, right? Um, no, I mean, that's, that's not what it is. Um, and, and so I, I'm just emphatically clear about that and, and say, and, and if parents come and say, but we really want to have our kids confirmed, and like, you know, this seems like way too high a bar. So, well, then we're just going to have to wait. <laughs> and maybe you should think about why that's the case, you know, and <laughs> and it's it's and that's caused some disruption to relationships. I'll say that, um, but I'm just emphatic about it and say, well, well, you do realize that your kids, when they're confirmed, they're basically signing on to be martyred, right? Like that's a pretty high bar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, well, because they're eligible to be on vestry, right? Um, <laughs> 
So we're, let's get back to this. We're going to talk about the seventh commandment today. Um, and we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about chastity. We're also going to talk about the single life. Um, and I want to spend some time just looking. Can you all see this well? This icon. We're going to spend like three minutes looking at the icon. It's not nearly enough, but we're going to look at it. I'll move this out of the way so you can see. What do you see? What stands out to you in this, in this image? I love the uh, linear passage from heaven to earth. Yes. So where does it start at the top? The the top. Hand of blessing of the Father, right? Passing down to Christ's son. Christ's son. Very prominent image, yeah. Then down to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So it's Trinitarian. Yep. Probably not the way that I'd like to see the Trinity depicted, but it's like on the ground, so whatever. And then down to who? Husband and wife. Husband and wife. How do we know they're husband and wife? He's got pants on. <laughs> He's got pants yeah. on. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, pants. okay. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you notice that he he's, he's wearing a garment of red? You know what the garment of red means, Mike and Mark? Sacrifice? Humanity and sacrifice. Mm. Right? Always humanity, always sacrifice, always blood. Yeah. How is she clothed? Purity. Right, but kind of blue, too. Blue is, blue, yeah, blue is spiritual, blue is divinity, blue is... Virginity. Uh, 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 yes. They have this, and, and what's going on here is there's, there's a Trinitarian relationship, right, with the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. you see this? Mm -hmm. 
What else do you notice? They're clasping hands and they're bowed inward towards each other. They're bowed inward towards each other, but where are they looking? I can't see their eyes. Okay. Out into yeah. the world. Yeah, they're looking outward into yeah. the world, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's really incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing I notice is uh, the, the wife seems to be every bit as tall, if not taller than the husband, mm -hmm. which is, of course, not typical. Right. Uh, and I was wondering if that was on purpose, too, to show maybe an equal yep. partnership. Yeah, they're equal partners. Mm -hmm. yeah, they are. I love how uh, the individuals are represented by trees, lights, and then there's a little baby tree. Yep. Bill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See that? Between them, there's yeah. a baby tree. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's very insightful. Yes, very true. They're also on the earth. Yeah. They're grounded in the earth. Yeah. But they're also in a very kind of trinitarian, almost incarnational. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I love. I love how Christ and, and the Church or Mary are yeah. there um, together. And you see the pillows they're seated on. Red and blue, right? Yeah. See this, this, the dual nature, right? Um, and this is important because this is this is not only an, a Christological statement, but it's also an ecclesiological statement, isn't it? You've got Christ in his two natures, human and divine. You also have the church in her two natures, human and divine. Um, and look, she's she's the Mary's Mary's showing forth an image of the church. She's looking up at him. Um, she's seated with him. She's looking up at him. Um, He's got the Bible on his lap. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's, he's got, he's got the Word of God on his lap. Are those wings all around? Him? Those are angelic. Those are the, those are the seraphim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's being shown here? The throne room. This is an eschatological vision of the church. Yeah. Oh, isn't that beautiful? It's eschatological marriage taking place. Um, and this is not just this is not just this should not just be exciting for married people. This should be exciting for all of us. Yes. All right. This is this is called the Mistero Grande icon. It comes out of a Catholic community just about 45 minutes north of Rome. And uh, the image is. Has anybody seen this before? Okay. I know some of you have. Um, it's it's uh, this Catholic church has been. Um, uh, doing a lot of teaching on marriage in small groups that they have in this town, and around the outside, this this icon hangs in our in our uh, house, and uh, I actually this is the first thing I do with engaged couples, is we have a meditation on this icon. Um, so a lot of people have seen it, and a lot of people know of it in our church. But I want to read to you on the outside is is in Italian a quotation from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I'm going to quote it to you. The various liturgies abound in prayers of blessing and epiclesis, asking God's grace and blessing on the new couple, especially the bride. In the epiclesis of this sacrament, the spouses receive the Holy Spirit as a communion of love of Christ and the Church. The Holy Spirit is the seal of their covenant, the ever-available source of their love, and the strength to renew their fidelity. And by the way, at this point, we, uh, people people in catechesis know what an epiclesis is. Like they, they're fully aware of like that that we invoke the Holy Spirit in, in, in the Eucharist upon the gifts, and that's something we do in America and Scotland and a few other places. But but there it is. And so I talk about this um, because we need to have our imaginations heightened about about marriage. We have a very we have a very minimalistic imagination about marriage. 
And so when we talk about the seventh commandment, when we talk about adultery, and when we talk about Christian marriage, um, we need to go at it with our, with, with our, with our minds wired up. Ask Go ahead. Question. Sure. Where do you find the art? How do you? How do you <laughs> I I file it away all the time. I mean, yeah. I I find images and I I have a you know I, I use Dropbox like a lot of people and and I just have a little folder that's like for later you know it's kind of like my Pinterest pin board that says you know, file this away. <laughs> so I do I keep track of all of it. Um, I do not use slides and catechesis typically. Um, for the questions and answers, because everybody has a physical copy. I think that's really important. Um, it allows them to take it with them. It allows them to not just kind of be passive, but actually having to engage with the text that's in front of them. Um, but the images I'll use about half the time. I'll, have, I'll start kind of some kind of image. That so how do you encounter that? Just through your reading? Through reading, through Google image searches, through all kinds of things. But this one I've encountered through, through various um, people teaching on this icon. It's like sermon illustrations, Kurt. You yeah. just pick them up. <laughs> that's, that's basically what it is. Yeah. And I think here's here's part of the thing that I want to encourage you to do. Um, I'm going to say excited. Um, yeah. You, when you're trying to engage a, a visual culture, I'll just say this: when you're trying to engage a pornographic culture, you need to use images. Because do you realize that a porn addict, the wiring in their brain is meant to respond to images like five times more than a normal person? And so an icon like this can redeem their understanding of marriage. That's the truth. So you've got to do this. Like, this is really important. Um, and that's one of the things that this, this priest in, in Italy talks about. That's why he had this commission. He said, we need an image that, that, that shows forth to a, to a visual and pornographic culture what we're for. Um, and I think this is just a hugely redeeming thing. So um, I've got copies out to people, and like you know, uh, I have prints of it made for married couples, and like it's it's a huge thing. And, and anytime I have a couple whose marriage is in crisis, I pull this down from my wall, I bring it to work with me and in their office. This is the first thing we talk about. So should our um, iconography budget in our churches be under catechesis? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm talking about? <laughs> this, is, this is another aside, and I know I know I'm not really getting to show you what what it looks like in practice yet, but I will. Um, catechesis and our, our working catechesis carries over into every aspect of our church life. Pastoral ministry, uh, the way we the way we organize ministry, the way that we think about how to serve uh, couples in crisis, how we um, how we talk about single the single life, how we talk about our unmarried people. Um, how we approach um, uh, how we approach mission. We talk a lot about catechesis. Okay, so I'm going to start out. What is the seventh commandment? The seventh, seventh commandment is, is you shall not commit adultery. Okay, these are placeholders, right, in the catechism. So don't spend much time like saying, okay, let's talk now, because these are meant to just be question and response for this portion. Um, and they're retained in the catechism because there's actually something really important about stopping and doing this, but I wouldn't spend any time in talking about it. Okay. What does it mean to not, not to commit adultery? Marriage is holy. Married persons are faithful to their spouses as long as they both shall live. So I must not engage in sexual activity with anyone other than my spouse. Marriage is holy. What does it mean for something to be holy? Set apart for God. Set apart for God. Okay. So, can we set 
what can we set apart for God as holy? Marriage. Marriage, okay. Our bodies, okay. Our spouse. Yeah. Our words. Our words. Thoughts. Sex. What's that? Sex. Sex. Absolutely. Our imagination. Our imaginations. Heart. Heart. Good. When we say married married persons are to be faithful to their spouse as long as they both shall live, what do we mean by that? Until death do us part. Yeah. But what do we mean by faithful? Are we just talking about sex, or are we talking about a lot of other things? You you just said we're talking about heart, we're talking about body, we're talking about things. We're talking imagination. About, well, well, certainly as men, we make covenants with our eyes. Yeah. Not, not to look lustfully at other women. Mm-hmm. That's true of women, too. That's very sad. What else? Being faithful means basically keeping the covenant that you established between yes. the two of you. Keeping that covenant. Okay. We'll talk more about what the covenant is. Death ends the obligation. So this is this is really a key thing, and it's something that we need to be clear about, is that covenants come apart in death. Um, and so the marriage covenant is, is, it actually comes apart when one dies. Um, so the other is then free to marry. And you might have funny conversations about that with your spouse if you haven't. <laughs> you might also say, um, no, I don't, I don't think we will get married after one of us dies. That's always a conversation that, that happens. That question for yeah, devil's advocate here. Yeah. That faithfulness is a two-way street, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a two-way street. Yes. You are faithful to each other. And now, what if one of you becomes unfaithful? What mm-hmm. happens to the other? We'll talk about that in a bit. Can we? Can you hold it for a little bit? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Why does God ordain marriage? God ordained marriage, marriage for three important, important purposes. For the procreation of children to be brought up in the church and the Lord, for remedy against sin, and to avoid fornication, and for mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both of the prosperity and adversity. These are the three purposes of marriage. They're stated at the beginning of every marriage rite in our church, uh, and we, we make this abundantly clear. <coughs> And the first is for the procreation of children. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the, the purpose of marriage is to provide a place for babies to be created, to be uh, created and born, so that they can be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, I will just tell you that if I ever have a couple sitting down with me and they're engaged, and I say, "So what about what about when are you going to have kids?" And say, "Oh, we're never going to have kids." I say, "Well, I can't officiate at your wedding." That's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, now you might say, but we, we know couples who are infertile. What about them? Your marriage still exists for the procreation of children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'll tell you a story about this. Um, in California, I was I was uh, I was officiating at a wedding, and both 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 parties in the couple, uh, in this married couple, were 65. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the bride called me one day, blushing because she had received the, the the bulletin 
And she said, Father, you're not really going to pray that if it be God's will that we, that we are given the blessing of children, are you? Can't, can't we remove that? And I said, no, we cannot remove that. She said, why? And I said, because Agnes, your marriage is going to be by definition an evangelical union whereby you can re reproduce your Christian life in others. You will procreate children in your marriage. Um, and I hope that through your life of hospitality, etc., you will have tons and tons of children that come from your marriage. So no, we will not remove that provision. She was like, could you at least explain it in the sermon? <laughs> and I said, I'd be glad to. We did. We did. I also told her jokingly, I said, you know, and you never know. You never know what God can do. There are miracles. She's like, Father, I've had a hysterectomy. <laughs> anyway, so, but I do want to say that, that, that this is at the heart of what marriage is about. Marriage is the basis of family. Um, and and uh, make no mistake about it, even for single people, single people have got to have a family that they're a part of. Um, it is so important that married couples not only invite other married couples over for dinner. You've got to have a way to invite people to marry um, So I, I want to encourage you, if you've, if you've ever had uh, just married couples over, invite some unmarried people too. They really appreciate it. Um, for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. Any of you men better men because you're married? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you not like, do you not even like to... Do you not even like to think about what you would be like and the miserable sot you'd be if you weren't married? I don't like to think about it. Um, I don't like to think about what my life would be. Um, in fact, I would say that, uh, that one of the things we, we learn in marriage is just how much of a, of a burden uh, and a trial married, marriage in our family life can be. Um, and in fact, single people in our church have to find a way to create those kinds of difficulties so that they can become holy too, right? Um, but, but many times, it's not just a remedy for sin because we have stability, it's a remedy for sin because our selfishness is sucked out of us. To avoid fornication. I mean, let's just say it. One of the reasons you get married is so that you can have a sexual relationship that God loves and cherishes and honors, and that honors Him. For mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. I think if all of you were to think about it, you would know of at least one person uh, in your life who uh, went through having something like cancer, went through horrible health struggles, horrible financial struggles. And their, and their wife or their husband uh, came through all of that a more wonderful person. Um, and how they came out of that trial better friends. And they came out of that trial with, with a better marriage. Uh, marriage exists for our sanctification. What does marriage illustrate? The New Testament reveals that human marriage is meant to reflect the faithful love and unite Christ to his church. Would somebody read this? Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, you have a Bible Somebody's got a Bible, right? Not just a smart
smartphone? Come on, you got it. Good, read it. <laughs> I'm going to step aside just a bit. We put scripture references in the catechism for a reason, and this is the reason. It's not just so that we can have proof texts. We're doing it so that we can read scripture together. And no. Do you go through all of them? Not all of them. It's just occasional. So I might say, you know, I feel like we should read scripture. It's very intuitive, right? It's supposed to be. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you hear that? The two shall become one flesh? Do you see the relationship to the incarnation? Whoa. See what we're talking about in that icon? Marriage shows forth a one flesh relationship which we as Christians share with our Lord Jesus. That means that, that marriage shows forth um, the life that you and I have to look forward to. And if you're unmarried or you're single, marriage shows that forth to you just as much as it does to me. Um, the New Testament reveals that human marriage is meant to reflect the faithful love that unites. Christ to his church. And what kind of love is it? Sacrificial. Sacrificial, right? Self-donative, right? It's not just the kind of love that says, oh, I love you so much. Smooching. <laughs> what is it? Shaped like a cross. It looks like, yeah, it looks like a cross. It looks like blood. It looks like, it looks like the kind of blood that cleanses from sin. And that's what Paul's talking about. We have a problem in our society today because people who are married try to love each other in another way. Um, the kind of love that we're after in marriage is self-giving, sacrificial, faithful love. And that's what we're going to talk about faithfulness today. <laughs> what does it mean to be faithful in marriage? To be faithful to marriage is to be exclusively devoted in heart, mind, and body to one's spouse in the marriage covenant. Think for a moment about Jesus. Is he devoted to his church in heart, mind, and body? Absolutely. 
Do you know that the thought of Jesus now at the right hand of the Father is continually of his church? That his mind is continually being shared with the church? Um, that his body has been offered to the church, and not just once, but continually? In the Eucharist, even, we see this relationship between Christ and his church. Christ offering his body to the church. And, and, and in marriage, the same thing happens. And it's not just men offering their bodies to their, to their wives. It happens in the other way as well. It happens as women offer their bodies to their husbands. An incredible communion happens that shows forth this faithfulness. That's what we're after in faithfulness in marriage. It's gift. The gift of self. So when we start to say, I'm not going to give myself in that way, when we start to say, out of marriage, it's all about me and what I get and, and what I'm getting out of this, and if I stop getting anything out of it, I'm out. We as Christians have to look only for what we can do. Because that, that's what defines Christian love. We're going to say a little bit about divorce. So let's ask this question. Is divorce ever permitted? Although he permits divorce in some cases, God hates it. It severs the union and causes eventual pain, suffering, and brokenness. By the way, this question is being revised, okay? Um, and it's being revised for several reasons, uh, but it's uh, it's a much better version of the future catechism, but I think we can, we can, we can make do with this for a bit. Um, do you know that at our church office we don't offer divorce certificates? Where do you have to go to divorce? The county. Why? Because divorce is a civil procedure. That's what it is. It makes you legally able to marry again. We don't do that in the church. We might tell you, and I might tell you in pastoral interactions with you, I might tell you, I think for your sake you, you might need to get divorced. I hate that, but I think you might have to do it. It might be the right thing. No, right now, I've said nothing about remarriage yet. Um, just so we can play again. <laughs> um, to all of you, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, you and your bishop have a policy regarding remarriage. Okay. I've got a policy regarding remarriage. It's that I don't do them. Period. Big old period, exclamation mark, we just don't do them. Uh, our bishop allows it. But if somebody in our church says, I'd like you to officiate our remarriage, I say, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. You can find somebody else to do it, um, but I'm not doing that. Are you seeking remarriage to the same person, or remarriage well, just Well, the same person is just renewing your marriage, right? Yeah. Hence but, remarriage. but remarriage to someone else. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we just don't do second marriages in our church. Mm -hmm. Now, stepping back here for just a second, I will say that to all of you as my my parish as people. Like, we don't do second marriages. Why? We're still married. Yeah, because you're married. Um, and if you get divorced, my first thing, my very first thing I'm going to say to you is. Um, it's a terrible situation. It stinks. And we love you and we're committed to you. But I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, I met a woman whose husband, uh, after years of infertility and failed treatments for infertility, decided that he was out. And so he left and he took up with another woman who he, who he later married after he had a child with her. And this, this young woman, 45 years old, continues to believe that this man is her husband. And she will tell you, if you talk to her, she'll say that I still gain strength and grace from my marriage. Mm 
Because though he has walked away from me, I won't walk away from him. And no matter what you think about remarriage, that's a powerful witness to the gospel. Would you not agree with that? That's a powerful witness. I once served in a church where the rector had been married, um, and he was he was 68 years old when I find, when I was done at that church, and, and uh, he got married at 32, and two years later his wife was out, and for 60 or for 40 years he's remained faithful to her in this state kind of like singlehood. Um, and what a great witness that is to that church. Um, so we need more witnesses like that. Um, who, who say, you know what, it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to go get remarried. It would be the easiest thing in the world for me, and my church might even, might even laud it. They might even say it's a good thing. But <clears throat> if we're going to have a witness to what marriage is, we've got to have a witness to what marriage is. And this needs to be changed in our culture. Um, so, there's that. Go ahead. Now, you've got your question. <laughs> um, if you see marriage as a vocation, mm-hmm. see the vocation to be discerned. Now, what if at the very beginning your discernment was really not at all? Yeah. You found out that you engaged into a relationship that is, again, for me, marriage is to be life-giving, right. not life-taking. That's not, so you're saying, what, so, what, if, what if people have entered into a marriage that by definition isn't marriage? Yeah, you, you, what will you do? Yeah, so uh, this is where we have this conversation. Um, I'll tell you that um, I have, in my short life as a priest of 12 years, I've processed four annulments with a bishop. And these were in cases where there was fraud on the part of one or the other, where, uh, where this man held himself out as being uh, attracted to this woman, and as it turns out, he was never attracted to her. Um, he's attracted to other men. You see, which was going to lead yeah. me to the other question, because um, for some of you, I'm actually, I come from the, the Roman Catholic side. Sure. I was trained and ordained as a Roman Catholic. Sure. I was a priest as a Roman Catholic for 10 years before yeah. I shifted. Oh, yeah. So you just came to the idea of annulment now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but earlier when I heard it as a church, you do not... <laughs> get involved in the thing, right. that was my thought, but you yeah. asked. And this does happen. So. I mean, it does happen, and, and, uh, and, but I will say that for those that I've done this with, uh, this has just been an incredible grace. Mm. Incredible grace. Because we're not, we're not candy-coating what happened. We're saying this is what happened. It was terrible. Mm. Um, but, but there's so much grace in that because they come to know that what I thought, my, what I thought was a marriage really wasn't. Really wasn't. Um, and, and it allows us, and, and no matter what you think about it, I think you can admit that, that having something like that allows you to be emphatically clear about what you need about marriage. Thank right, you. Let's, let's move on. How else is the seventh commandment broken? Fornication, same gender, sexual acts, rape, rape incest, pedophilia, bestiality, pornography, lust, or any other form of self centered sexual desire. Why must we have a laundry list? Because it has to include all of us. Because we must have a laundry list. We really do. We've got to be clear. Um, And we live in the midst of of a world which says, but maybe this would be okay. But maybe this would qualify as something that might be good. 
And, and we Christians are emphatically clear about what violates this community. We have to be. Um, and, the, and the basis of the clarity largely hinges on this last phrase. Did you catch it? All other, any other form of self-centered sexual desire and behavior. You see, the sexual relationship in marriage is not meant to fulfill me. In fact, the best kind of sex, if you're married, you know this, and maybe if you're not, you know this, is when you give unreservedly to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I mean, I'm talking baby-making sex. Okay? I'm talking the kind that results in, in, in a Geronimo off the cliff. Because you have no idea what might happen. The whole thing could change in your life. It's wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful. Um, and it's a joy. But it's a joy that comes from not being in control. It's a joy that comes from not getting what I think I deserve. And so we list all of these because they are inherently self-centered. And, by, and because of that, abusive. The re, and, and some people will say, you Christians seem to, have, seem to have impossibly high standards regarding sex. And you know why? We have, we, have in, we have incredibly high standards regarding sex because we have incredibly high standards about what it means to actually love your neighbor. And if you're constantly looking to gratify yourself sexually, you can't love your neighbor. You can't love your wife. You can't love your husband. You can't love them. All right? What does it mean for you to be chaste? It means that I must refrain from sexual acts outside of marriage. And I must respect myself and all others in body, mind, and spirit. Practice sexual purity and be brought as a tributaries of God, not as objects for personal gratification. John Paul II had a wonderful phrase, and that is that chastity um, is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Do you ever hear this phrase? It's in this theology of the body talks. Chastity is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Why? So that we can learn to love. Um, if I've ever got a couple and they want to get married and they're, they're sitting in my office and they're on my couch and I say, so how long have you been having sex? That's always one of the questions I ask. And it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> they say, well, we haven't really been good in that area. And I say, well, uh, you do realize you're, you're, you're about to sign on to really love each other unreservedly. You're signing on to, um, to respect the other. And how do you expect that to be the case once you're married if you're not doing it now? We have to learn this. This is important for parents. This is important for your children to teach your children chastity. Because they'll never be able to lead a life that is self-giving. They'll always look for immediate gratification instead of delayed gratification. They'll always seek their own good well above the good of others. And guess what? Chastity is not just for those outside of marriage. Chastity is for all of us. All of us. I learned chastity by staying up well past my bedtime doing dishes. I learned chastity by picking up, uh, even as I'm a a, a sympathetic vomiter, I learned chastity by cleaning up throw up for my kids because my wife needs sleep. Um, I learned chastity by when 
we cannot have sex in our marriage by remaining chaste in the midst of it. It's hard and it's not easy, but it is worth it because I learned to love my wife. And if you're single, you get to learn it in that same way. I must respect myself and all others in body, mind, and spirit, practice sexual purity, and view others as image bearers of God and not as objects of personal This is the difference between love and lust, beloved. If I love you, I see you as an image bearer of God and therefore worthy of my honor. If I lust after you, I see you as simply a tool to gratify myself. And we Christians always want to hold up that self-giving love. How do you benefit from chastity? Chastity enables me to give myself in friendship, avoid difficulty in marriage, and experience the true freedom and integrity before God. And this is the last question on this, so we're going to break after this. But I want to say this. What's at stake in our society's ongoing relationship about sexuality is this. Pure and simple friendship. Do you know there was a time when men in America could walk hand in hand down a sidewalk? When men in America could write effusive love letters to each other? There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing scandalous about this. This is normal. Because they actually had friendships. And I'll tell you this. As a man, I've suffered from this. Not being able to have deep friendships with other men. For fear of being called gay. For fear of being ridiculed and castigated. But I have to tell you this. Uh, some men in our church have started a uh, Sunday night thing that we call uh, man night. <laughs> and, and man night is about conversation and bourbon. <laughs> Maybe occasional beer and cider and other things for those that don't like bourbon. But, but we put our cell phones in a basket. We walk into the room and we have real discussions and real talk and we support each other and we pray for each other and we, we love being together and we give gifts to each other without fear. It has been one of the greatest things of my life. And we go there not looking to gratify ourselves but looking to give to each other. It's been one of the most rich experiences of my life. See, friendship is at stake in our, in our discussions and our ongoing debates about sexuality. We, we, we are in danger of losing friendship. And here's what, here's what the ancients tell us, and I'll list Cicero as my example, but uh, Cicero tells us that if a man can have everything in this world, a human being can have everything in this world, all possessions, all wealth, all, all wisdom even, but if he has no friends to share it with, it's worthless. And as Christians we teach this, that you can be everything in this world, but if you're not a friend of God, you're nothing. We need friendship. We need to be able to avoid difficulty in marriage by knowing that no matter what happens, we're committed to this relationship of self-giving. 
For some of you women, you worry about whether or not you can gratify your husband. Stop worrying about it. Challenge him on it. You start to worry about whether or not your worth is maintained. Um, listen, you're an image bearer of God. Lastly, we need to talk about this. To really experience the true freedom of integrity before God. If you came here today and you're experiencing sexual brokenness and sexual difficulty and division in your own life, the reason to embrace chastity is so you can be one person, not two or three or four. And so I want to say to you, I'm, I'm available to you today and later uh, to set all that aside and help you do it. Um, so if you, if you want to talk to me, I'm, I'm available to you. Um, so anyway, stepping out of the cactus roll. You get it? See what just happened? Yep. There was a pastoral interaction there um, that was facilitated by catechesis. We talked about stuff that we probably would avoid talking about otherwise. You see what I'm talking about? Like, this is what a catechism gives you, friends. It's a rich thing. Right? It says, um, please, and this is why I say, please, please, please teach the catechism. Like, <laughs> because there are things that it would not occur to you to teach on, but being forced to teach on them is one of the most wonderful, valuable, incredibly life-giving experiences you can possibly have. It's like preaching from a lectionary, right? Like, there are some Sundays where you, you're sitting there like, I really don't want to preach on this text. Yes. Can I please teach on uh, something else, you know? Why not Philippians 2? That's fun. And, and you think, uh, you know, it would just be so much easier. But, you know, and this particular Sunday is coming up. It's, it's the, the wedding banquet, right? And I love the wedding banquet parable, but i got to deal with some, some difficult hermeneutical issues. But you know what? The lectionary forces me to do it. And I'm growing because of it. Same thing happened with the Catholic. You're being forced to teach stuff you, you wouldn't ordinarily <coughs> teach. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I find it particularly helpful for me who doesn't have a lot of pastoral experience. Yeah. Right? Because how do I know what to teach? Yeah. So the catechism really helps me press, you know, press me into those areas, just like the lectionary. That's how we picked it up. Same thing. Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, crap. We need, we need to have something next week. Yeah. Hold it. Check it out. I'll tell you, I, I never prepare for catechesis. I didn't prepare for this. This, this, I came to this fresh. Um, the last time I taught on this was in the summer, and I just came in fresh. Now I'm showing you that not to say like, look how great I am, but to show that catechesis is a practice and a skill that you acquire over time. Um, and and so uh, one of the things that I challenge people to do is say, okay, well that seems really hard and really difficult. Okay, we'll try it. Just try it. Right? The worst thing that could go wrong would be a total train wreck, and maybe you learn something and you think. But maybe next time I'll go back out and it won't be so bad. <laughs> um, but, but it's important to try it. Um, the other thing I want to show you is that this pastoral dimension of catechesis is really important. Okay. And, and one of the ways that I'll describe it is that um, uh, William, Harmless, William Harmless in his great book, Augustine and the Catechumen, talks about uh, what goes on in this relationship of inquiry between the catechist and the catechumen. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm the one being catechized and the one doing the catechesis, is to try to understand who they are where they're coming from. And inquiry is actually a formal thing that happened in the ancient church where, where you would say, um, well, tell me about yourself. 
And then you ask their neighbor, their Christian neighbor, well, tell me about it. Does he love his mother? Does he, like, bring her meals and things? Does he take care of her? Um, does he, uh, is he, is he kind and generous to the poor? There's all of this going on. And Harmless says that, that Augustine goes a really great step, and he says, instead of just wanting to get to know the catechumen, uh, so that we know whether or not they're suitable for baptism, Augustine does it so that he can improve his catechizer. Ooh. Right? So that pastoral dimension is there so that I get to know the people in that group. I, listen, I'm constantly having catechumens over for dinner at our house. Because I want to get to know them so that I can tailor every session to them on the fly. Right? So that I can look at somebody and, and say, even if I'm not naming them, which I never do, but, but just I can say, I'm going to speak directly to you right now. I'm going to look you in the eye while I'm doing catechesis. I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to say this. Right? So, so there's that incredible pastoral dimension. It's really important. The other thing I'd say, too, is that uh, one thing that is really good in catechesis is if you have great examples of Christian witness in your church, um, raise that up. Right? Say, if you're looking for a great example of enduring difficulty in marriage, talk to so-and-so. They're an incredible witness about this. And you say, but yeah, but they don't live together. Well, yeah, that's my point. Like, they're sticking it out and, and doing the hard work to reconcile their marriage, even as they're not living the same. Hello? <laughs> you know, I, I, I want, and if they're comfortable with that, being, being identified in that way, then yeah, let's do it. We, what are we afraid of? Um, so I think that's, that's a really key element, right? And you, you got to have a level of comfort with people to be able to do that in the first place. But, but it's to say, um, you know, I'm constantly pointing to people who in our church who are missionaries, you know, saying, like, this is what the kingdom is about. We've got, we've got a couple in our church that are missionaries to North, to North Korea. Okay. And they, he teaches in a, in a university in Pyongyang um, and shares the gospel with students in, insofar as he's able without being killed. Um, and I just say, this is what the kingdom is about, friends. Like, God is establishing missions in North Korea, even as we kind of want to bomb them, right? There's there are two different there are two different kingdoms at play here. <laughs> so you have powerful images. So I say, like, look, your examples need to be incarnate in the life in which they're in which they are. That's really key. So it sounds like you do some of this pastorally at home with catechumens, but are there other places you build in to let people ask questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, early on in, in our years, um, I encourage questions. And actually, Sean, you taught me some of this. Like, when you've got catechumens and that first kind of thing, you just say to them, and it, you know, you might have two or three people when you start doing this, and that's great. Um, I'm at a point where I've got 65, but, you know, I would do it with two or three uh, on a Sunday morning. I really would. Um, but I do things like I sit down with them and I say, okay, and I usually do this, I, I try to meet with new people after a week or so of them coming. Um, I say, so, so what do we do that's weird? <laughs> and it's a mouthful, like, you bow, like a lot. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> um, and this provides an opportunity to have that conversation. Um, and they know they can ask me questions. Um, I do this in catechesis. Um, so we encourage questions. I encourage people to stop the whole train if they're lost. Um, because here's one thing we don't, we don't quite get about 
you're going to forget about catechesis, but catechesis is meant to be basic. It's not meant to be a, an advanced course. It's meant to be basic. And here's my fear. My fear is that sometimes we get so advanced that we're teaching calculus to people who've never mastered addition and subtraction. Yes. And so, and we're not doing this to dumb it down. I think you would agree that what we just did was not dumbed down at all. It's built on a foundation of a lot of basics that have been taught earlier. But I'll say this to you: a lot of times, people people start to despair of ever really learning what Christians believe because it's it's either been scattershot or it's been let's start with the advanced stuff and then maybe we'll get some 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 simple stuff or and you know so much of our so much of our biblical instruction is um, suffers because it doesn't doesn't have a firm foundation of doctrinal instruction um, so I think I think we're in a place where we need to we need to get um, basic instruction down before we move on um, and so what I've just said to people for literally for two years, we didn't have another class than this. This was it. Um, we taught catechism for two years straight. People still come back after two or three years to go do the to go do catechesis again um, because it's so life giving. Um, one more thing that I want to mention. I always say in catechesis, what you're learning in catechesis is supposed to be put on the ground tonight, like <laughs> tomorrow, like not. Finish the class and then see what you want to do about it. Like it needs to be started tonight. And I'll tell you a story about that. We were doing catechesis in that old classical school cafeteria, and uh, I was sitting down at a table group full of people, and one was a Regent College graduate. He recently, recently graduated from Regent College in Vancouver, he and his wife had. And, uh, and he sat there at the table, and when we got to the question about how's this going to matter tomorrow, we'd been teaching on the daily office. And he said, we should pray the daily office together. And somebody at the table said, what do you mean? He said, like, we should do it. <laughs> and so what do you mean? He said, like, um, we should pray morning prayer together every day. Okay. How do you want to do that? He's like, and he turns to this undergraduate at Baylor. He's a PhD student. He's like, you have a great apartment. You should host morning prayer on, on Monday. It's tomorrow morning. 7.30 in the morning. What are you doing at 7.30 in the morning? She's like, I guess I'm going to be making cinnamon rolls for all of you. <laughs> and, and they started praying morning prayer together every morning of the week, Monday through Friday, at 7.30 in the morning. And they've been doing it for three and a half years. Wow. And they're going to continue to do it. And out of that morning prayer group, I'm going to tell you this, this is, this is my time. Uh, out of that morning prayer group, we now have the beginnings of a uh, postgraduate fellowship program for uh, recent college graduates. We had the beginnings of a, um, of a study house for, for undergraduate students and graduate students at Baylor who will live in community and, and uh, pray the offices together. And we're even talking about starting a great text junior college in our church because of that one teacher that led students to pray morning prayer together every morning of the week. And we do this in homes and we do this on campus. And it is sometimes we'll have 20 students join pray morning prayer on Tuesday morning. I probably wouldn't have otherwise. I would say, yeah, that's, that's a nice thing to do. It's okay. Yeah, you should do it. I do it. But instead, I was teaching on the day of that. Was people, people were thinking, well, you know, every time we learn something, we put it in practice. So let's practice this. <laughs> I will tell you, at Christ Church, half the church prays the day of the office every day. 
Yep. And it's because we teach it. Right? And it changes the characteristics of our fruit. So, go ahead. Do you, do you have the daily office at the church, formal service at the church? Well, we, we, don't have, we, don't have, we don't have the church building yet, but we will. And we'll have it there. Um, but, you know, there's something really fun about having it at somebody's house and having it at a chapel on campus. That's just been really, really, really fun. Um, well, and it's missional, too. It's missional, yeah. So, I, we may have it at the church, but... I'm going to I'm going to keep on to this group for quite some time. Yeah. Anybody else? I realize it's been sort of long, but but uh, but I, it's, it's been a joy and a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm even if I'm not able to make these meetings, I'm with you in this in this work and uh, and love you all. And um, if uh, yeah, this is this is a great joy. I mean to be to be in the in the uh, in the trenches with you. So. Thank you. Awesome.